There are some of you in this room that actually like tests. You know who you are. You're that student who looked forward to tests. I have something to tell you. The rest of us think you're very weird. We just do. Uh, Some of you are high-fiving each other. You're like, yeah. You know what, though? If you like tests, you'll love this morning. And we said this at the beginning of James, that you'll actually like the book of James. Because James essentially went through and he's offering, the way he wrote the letter, it's almost like he's offering tests for people to see if their faith is genuine or not. And the way that we're going to go about this morning is this. Uh, we are going to basically um, issue 10 questions that I want you to write down. And just a couple of ground rules. Some of you are, are diligent note takers. I'm a diligent note taker. And if I didn't get number seven, I would be missing what's going on because I didn't get the wording on number seven. I would want number seven filled in completely. Some of you track with that. Uh, I'll tell you what, all of the questions are going to be online. So you can get them on our website very, very easily. So you don't need to write them. Here's why I put one through ten down is as you see one that particularly um, resonates with you or you want to go back to, write that one down. So at the end, instead of having 10 that you kind of don't know what to do with, maybe there's three that really nail you this morning, and you go, man, I want to explore that one some more, because that one got something going in me, and I need to, I need to, to go back to that a little bit. Remember that uh, James is writing here um, to people that he loves. He's writing to Christians who are, who are of the dispersion. They were scattered, right? And yet, uh, even though he's writing to a Jewish audience, he assumed that some had genuine faith and that some did not have genuine faith. And what the Bible repeatedly says is this, test your faith. Test yourself to see where you're at. You can be going along in school in a class and think things are going great. And then you get to a test and realize things aren't going great. I got this. I know this subject matter. Because it all makes sense when the teacher's talking. But then when I'm tested on it and I'm called on to act on it, man, I don't have it down so much. Or maybe it comes out shining like an A+, and you go, see, I knew it. And it feels good to have that confirmed in a test. Now, let me just ask you this. Um, Get out of, like, church answer mode here for a second, okay? How do you know uh, if something is working or not, okay? I mean, take a recipe, for instance. How do you know if a recipe is working or not? Okay, you taste it. First of all, you have to make it, right? Because you could see a recipe written down. It's like, well, maybe that's good. I don't know. But then you have to actually make it, build it, create it, and then have someone taste it, right? Okay. Um, how about a harmony? Those of you musicians, how do you know if a harmony is working or not? Yeah, right. So you try it out, right? You, you try it and go, let's tweak that or, or whatever. How about a microphone? Is this on? Testing. Testing one, two, three. Right? You check it. So as, as things go along, all through life, we're constantly testing things. We're constantly stopping and doing little diagnostics on things. You numbers people, you're doing audits on things. So whatever terminology floats your boat, that's what we're talking about. Now, what about relationships? What about personal growth? How do you know if you're growing in holiness, for instance? How do you know if you're, how do you know if you're growing in patience? Now, these are harder kinds of things. How about spiritual growth? These are harder things to measure. You can't just get a little dial out and get a reading on it to see if it's working. But there are ways to test it. And I think that's what's going to go on this morning. That's my prayer anyways. 2 Corinthians 13.5 just says this. You can write it down if you want, but just listen. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize 
that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, doesn't that sound like, if you read that scripture and you tie it in with a lot of other scripture, doesn't that sound like you're not just in if you were born and that we're all one big happy family child of God because we're living? The Bible repeatedly says, examine yourself. You're in Christ Jesus unless unless you fail the test. So as we write these ten questions out or as you see them, I want you to think in terms of of this, this idea of a test. Now, James is a book of action. If you talk to people who know their Bible at all, and you talk about, where does it talk about putting your faith to work or putting it into action? Many would jump right to James, and rightfully so. We've talked over and over about how he keeps giving these imperatives throughout the book. But James doesn't talk about just doing action, just getting busy doing religious-type stuff. Go do churchy things. He doesn't say that at all. He actually says, go do action, but do the right kind of action. One of the actions that we're going to look at is where someone's hungry and you say, well, here's a religious action. I'll pray for you. Go go be warmed and be filled. But that's just religious prayer talk words. He says, do the right action. That's not even the right action. That's just doing churchy kind of stuff. So as we go along here, catch this message. It's It's not just about getting busy. It's about getting busy doing the right things, getting busy doing the things God wants you to do. We're going to jump into these 10 questions, and uh, the way that we're going to do this is this. Uh, 10 of you have been randomly selected, providentially selected, um, to stand up right where you are and read one of the questions. The way you will know whether you've been selected or not is this. Underneath your chair, if you reach right underneath your chair, there are 10 envelopes that are taped underneath 10 randomly selected chairs. Now, here's what I need to know. Because we didn't know where exactly people would be sitting... Um, some of your heart rates are skyrocketing right now. It'd be just fun to have a live feed of just everyone's heart rate. And you'd see the ones, uh, you know, chair 72A is really pumping right now. Here's what I need. I need you to look at your envelope. Some of you are already opening. It's like Christmas. You just rip into it. You had a number on the front of your envelope. That number is critical to the success of this morning, okay? Just like a Scantron, if you're filling in circle C for the wrong number, it just blows the whole thing up, Okay? So here's what I need. If you have one of the envelopes, I need to make sure that 10 people are standing. Would you stand up right now? That's all you're doing right now is a warm-up for what's coming later. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right, so here's where it gets a little nuts. Kids, you're going to check with mom and dad, or whoever's here watching you. You can go ahead and sit back down. There are clearly two more envelopes around this room under a chair. Right now, if mom and dad are cool with it, go find the other two. It's an Easter egg hunt, okay? All right, while they're doing that, the rest of you are tracking up here. Some of you are like, I've never been to a church like this. That's cool. We like that. Um, all right, here is, you're going to have to get low, people. I'll, I'll just give you a clue. You've got to get low because it's underneath the chairs, right? Be careful with people around you. Sorry if this is real. We found a second one. Okay, your dad gets to read one. There's one more still. I need to know when it's found, too. Help him out. Okay, here's question one. James asking questions of us. By the way, we're going to have some fun this morning. We're going to laugh. But I promise you, all ten of these questions have been ruminating in my mind and heart. Pretty penetrating questions. And what Les just read is a penetrating question. Those of you who have been following along well understand that... uh, 
that James talks a lot about this, that James talks a lot about trials and temptations. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I want you to do something right now, if you'd be willing, is to take your pencil and just jot down on, on the paper, what is one trial or test that has come upon your life in about the last 20 weeks or so? I know we don't think of our life in terms of weeks maybe, but it's taken us roughly 20-some weeks to get through James. What's a trial or a test maybe that has come upon you even during this series, even as we as a church have been walking through James? Um, or, or if you're newer with us, what's just one that you've faced in the last couple of months? I want you to, I want you to, to write that down. We have Christian tracks that sometimes go out, and I have mixed feelings about them. Sometimes I think they're used kind of in a, uh, in a damaging way almost, but many times there's a, there's a good use to them to be able to, to turn a, a conversation from, you know, the giants or the weather or the stock market or whatever might be on someone's mind to, to more important matters, which, which people seem to have precious little time to discuss sometimes. But I wish Christian tracks were just a little more honest. Um, I think they should read something like this. Romans 5.2 says this, Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That might be this part that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's good news. That's the gospel message. And then you have this verse, and you say, yes, I love it. And then you say, but wait, that's not all. The verse goes on to say this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So the Christian track might read something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you're like, yes, love that part. Not only that, yeah, bring it on. What else? The second part is this, which will include all kinds of suffering in the name of your new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just like he did. And then people go, oh, <laughs> But do you see all of a sudden they have a more accurate picture of what the Christian life is about? It's not just a freebie like the guy chucking, you know, uh, well, if there was a hockey season, chucking T-shirts out into the stands at the Sharks game. It's not just that kind of a freebie. There is the free gift of eternal life. God does love you. He does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it includes all kinds of things that track in a direction that aren't often the way that we would choose to do it. James has been so much about trials and enduring patiently through them. We talked about this idea that are trials necessary, normal, and to be expected? Yes. But come on, pure joy? You want me to find joy in my suffering, joy in my trial? I'll say this. You are thriving in your trials if you know a couple of things. If you know, if, if you at the core of who you are, you are deeply convinced that your trials are producing something eternally good for you, you'll actually thrive in the midst of a hardship. You'll thrive in it. If your trials, and you look back and you begin to realize this, that every time you have a trial or a test, you run into the arms of Jesus, and you look back and say, man, the closest I've been to my Savior the most clear-thinking human being I've ever been is right in the midst of the darkest storms of my life. Then when you see those brewing, you say, Lord, help me again not to run away from you in this, but to run right smack dab into you. I know that's the place I need to be. 
You won't just be looking to hang on in trials. You'll actually begin to experience joy. Here's a little throwback from several weeks ago. I want you to just try not blinking right now. Don't blink. Some of you already blew it because I mentioned it in the power of suggestion. I'm going to blink because I don't, I don't count. So right now, if you're still not blinking, um, there's some mild irritation happening. Some of you look scary. <laughs> Um, if, if you were able to hold yourself together, if you could actually grab your, your hands and help, and help them out, and you still haven't blinked yet, you'd be moving probably a little bit beyond the, the mild irritation. Here's what would happen. At some point along the line, probably only a couple of minutes from now, you would actually begin to experience real pain, genuine pain, where you would say, man, I have got to blink these eyes. Here's the other way you'll absolutely find joy in trials is if you have a proper perspective and a proper view of pain. If you see pain, like most Americans do, as to be avoided at all costs, God, whatever happens on this vacation, keep us safe. Please don't let anything bad happen to us. God, I want the safest life possible, and then let me die painlessly in my sleep. Amen. If that is your prayer, then what is pain but the ultimate enemy? And any pain that enters into your life, if you view that as strictly the enemy, then then you'll have a warped view of what pain does. You know what pain causes your eyes to do? It causes you to refresh your eyeballs and cleanse them out every few seconds without you even thinking about it. You know what leprosy is? Leprosy is not having the sensation of any uh, sensory. So if you walk... If you, have a, if you have a walk and, and there's a sore spot, you know what you do automatically by God's design? You shift your gait a little bit. You might start to limp. You might start to roll your foot a little bit to give that tender spot uh, room and time to heal. These are all, pain is a beautiful gift of God. And if we were to have a proper view of pain to say, wake up, change something, don't forget to blink then all of a sudden we begin to say, wow, we can actually have joy in trials. Someone has envelope number two. Who has number, number two? Here's number two. I've got number two. Okay, here it is. Do I play with temptation or resist it from the start? James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Remember what James does? He goes along and says, don't you dare blame when, when you go into, into, into temptation. He knows the human heart. The human heart wants to blame. Here's, here's my simple reminder of this. Don't play the blame game. The devil made me do it. That was Eve. My spouse made me do it. That was Adam. Ultimately, what was Adam's other sin? Adam's other sin was this. God, you made me do it. Remember? This woman you gave to me. It's God's fault. That card of the devil made me do it, my spouse made me do it, God made me do it. Thank you, Brian. About four minutes too late, but thank you. It's a diligent daughter right there. These cards have been, have been played out through the centuries, haven't they? Devil made me do it, spouse made me do it. God, you caused this to happen to me. And James turns that around and says, don't, don't play the blame game. Instead, do learn to walk as God would have you walk. I could read several passages right now that say, here's what it is to put on the new person of Christ. I could read the fruit of the Spirit 
and read all kinds of, of great traits, moral traits. And as you see these kinds of lists put before you, we have a couple of options. One is to just ignore it and go, that's unrealistic, that's fake, I'll never get there. But there's, but there's two approaches. If someone learns what God would, would have them do, and then, and then they, they, they do it. Here's one approach. One is to buckle down and try harder. Perfect a couple of principles and then strive. And then you know what inevitably happens, don't you? You fail. You trip up and fail. Now, here's one approach. Buckle down, master some principles, try really, really hard, fail, and then cover up. Because everyone else at church, everyone else in my life seems to be doing okay in this. That's one approach. Here's the second approach. This is the biblical approach. Depend wholly on the power of the Spirit, leaning on the perfect life that Christ lived. Therefore, when it says to love your enemies, it says to forgive those who've sinned against you, we know that we can forgive because we know what it is to be forgiven much. We've got a Savior who's done that. When we're told to initiate love, we know because Jesus showed us how to initiate love in that he came to us, died for us, while we were still enemies of his. And when the Scriptures command us to withstand temptation, we live by faith knowing that Jesus defeated temptation and he handed us the victory, thereby empowering us. And you know what a Christian does? They fail. And you know what they do when they fail? They confess. They walk in the light. The ongoing posture of a Christian is is confession and receiving grace and coming and celebrating that story over and over and over. And you know what? For a real Christian walking in this, it never gets old. That storyline never gets old. So the question comes back to us. Do we play with temptation? Do we invite it in? Do we just have tea with it? Or do we resist it from the start? Do we manage our sin or do we put it to death? That's the question that James asks. Number three, huge truth in the book of James. Do I find joy? We just read about the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Do I find joy in obeying or just merely learning and studying about it? Is it some kind of intellectual exercise or has it changed my life? James 1.22 puts it bluntly, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. All right, look at the screen for a second. Remember this? We wanted to see who the real cowboy was. And from this picture right here, here's the reality. We don't know. We don't know who the real cowboy is. We can have all kinds of ideas about who may or may not be the cowboy, right? Based on dress or appearance or the location or the age of the picture. All kinds of frivolous stuff we don't really know. So it is with a Christian. A Christian isn't one who just can walk around quoting all kinds of scripture. Those who do are. Those who don't, all the rest, they're called hypocrites or fraud in the banking industry or a poser or a wannabe, right? This is the whole series title of Do or Dead. You either do or you have a dead faith. If all it is is words, then we're like potentially some of these uh, quote-unquote cowboys behind us. Now, if I show you this picture, we can start to get a sense of who the real cowboy is, right? Playing horseshoes or putting shoes on a horse. Big difference, right? Uh, How about this one? Sitting on a fence or fixing a fence, right? As you start to see the actions, you go, I can get which cowboy is here. How about this one? Dressing the part or living the part. 
And finally, there are some that are living in pretend world, right? And there are some that are living in the real world. Which one hurts more? The one without the mats, right? So it is with a Christian. There are some who go around doing kind of cowboy things. But when you look at their life, you just, you just say, no, that's not true. Now, now, how about instead of turning this outward to other people and us making judgments on others, how about we just turn this right in ourselves? Do I play horseshoes? Or do I go out into the muck and slide my hand down a horse's leg, get him to lift it, and start doing the hard work of it, getting kicked once in a while? That doesn't smell too hot right there. But that's the real life of a cowboy. What's the real life of a Christian? There's a lot of parallels there where you can kind of play the game, dress the part, look good for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday, but the rest of the time you're just dress up pretend land. Here's the kicker with this one. The blessing always comes in the obeying, not just in the knowing. So if you know the truth and you never act on it, there's, there's maybe you could give an argument that there's some shred of blessing just from the knowing. But you talk to the stories that are represented in this room, the deep, abiding blessing of God always comes when God says, follow me, and the people get up, leave what they have, and they take that first step following, actually doing what he says. That's where the blessing comes. Many hear the truth and aren't blessed by it. Number four, Love the practicality of James. Brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember our deck of cards? We took a deck of cards and we thought, you know, the way that people tend to look at one another is one side of the card. What suit are you? What number are you? What rank are you? Let's put you all out into rank and file. And I'm immediately going to assess, am I over that person or under that person? Do I yield to that person or dominate that person? You flip every one of these cards over, they look exactly the same. Here's here's the thing behind show no partiality. You see every single person you meet as 100% human. That's it. First and foremost, they're 100% human. You know what 100% human means? 100% human means they have the image of God. Stamped on them. Even the yucky people in your life. Even the really wayward ones in our lives. They're 100% human. And they've been stamped with, with a certain dignity and value and worth just for the fact that they were created by God as human beings. James is very blunt about this. He says this, partiality is sin. Stop it. Like any other sin, stop it. If we have someone walk in through our church doors, he gets very practical here. If you're having church and someone comes in of some influence, either by wealth or by position, and you give some kind of preferential treatment, hey, welcome, glad you're here, come sit near the front. And someone else were to walk in that wasn't like you, or didn't share your same values, or smelled, or looked, or talked differently than you, and you decided just with, the, with just with the subtle Christian gentle nod, but there's nothing further, that's sin in your heart. Because you've just made a distinction between the two of them, based on the wrong side of the card, so to speak. 
Jesus never commanded us to talk and know about loving one another. You know what he said? He said, love one another. Do it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just know it. Now, you don't need to write all these down. These are all on some back podcasts that you can go back and listen to if you, if you really want to. But, but here was the challenge at the end of that message. What if we all walked out? What if just this number of people this morning walked out of here and for the remainder of 2012 refused to do the following? I mean, what if we flat out refused to ever put someone down based on his or her DNA? We saw each person as an image bearer of God, and on and on it goes. That would begin to change and influence a culture at a school next door. But it's not just a middle school problem, is it? We carry this on into adulthood. It would change the culture of your family. It would change the culture of your workplace. Our city would begin to feel the effects if the Christians could do this. Pray for God's mercy and healing and grace to carry on to simply love one another with genuine love. Here's number five. What has my tongue been up to? James 1.19 says, Let every person be quick to, li- uh, to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And verse uh, chapter 3.10 says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. With one image, we can kind of just see some of the instruction. Here's what James walked through. In 119, he talks about anger. How's our tongue been with anger? In, uh, in chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about hypocrisy. The tongue will say, go in peace, but fail to meet the very needs that were just shared. And in verse 3, 9, it says that the same mouth, we bless our father and curse our brother. That's hypocrisy. That's just a double, divided, split tongue. Here's 4.11. Gossip. How are we doing at gossip? Don't speak evil against one another. You don't need to know Greek or go to the original language. You know what that means in the original language? It means don't speak evil against one another. It's pretty simple. To know what it means, harder to pull off. How about boasting? Uh, boasting in chapter 4, he talks about the person who goes and boasts of all these great things that he's going to do, almost acting as if he's the sovereign one or she's the sovereign one. How are we doing at boasting? How about lying? In chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Above all, don't swear by these different things. And what, what the heart of that is, is you're really trying to lie. You're trying to weasel around your words and get to the, the technicality without, without getting to the heart of things. And finally, in 5.19, grumbling and complaining. So anger, hypocrisy, gossip, boasting, lying, grumbling, complaining. I've just listed a few. The Bible goes on for a lot more to to learn how we should be doing our tongue. Just a simple question. How has our tongue been doing? What's it been up to? All right, number six. Who's got number six? Do my actions and words match? Nope, you can hang on to that. It's a souvenir. Do my actions and words match? Match. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, a lot of those, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, Jesus uses just a real basic logic here in in Luke 6. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to? Instead of just thinking of Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ, like it's part of his first name, Lord means boss. 
Lord means general. It's like, yes, sir, and then not doing anything about it. I mean, Jesus just calls it out. It's really silly. Why on earth would you call me Lord, Lord, but not do the things I tell you to do? And yet, I think about my own life and whole seasons of time where I thought, wow, I've gone through that. I've gone through the motions of saying, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll pray it real, real fervently. And go off and do your own thing. Jesus just calls it out for what it is. Do your words and your actions match? It's interesting, if you read Jesus talking to the seven churches in Revelation, starting in chapter 3, as a men's group, what we did this week to talk about going after strays, going after those who've wandered away, we just allowed the seven churches to be read out loud, and then we just picked apart. We said, where did these churches get off base? Where did they stray? And it was pretty fascinating to look at the seven churches that way and see that they, some got strayed off by, by just forgetting, not remembering. Some left their first love. Remember that? Some had great works but poor theology. Others let false teachers get in. So there's all these different ways that we can stray. But do you know what was common to all the churches? Jesus calls out and sees their hard work. He calls out and says and commends I see the diligent works that you have. Every church had works. Every church was doing something with their faith. Lest if they didn't, it wouldn't even be a a, a real church. The message of Revelation 3, 4, and 5, though, is this. Works wasn't enough. Some had been working without love or working in a false kind of a way. But it's a giant message to us as Christians to say, is our faith being put into action? If not, we're completely missing it. Now, one of the, uh, one of the clear commands, it's a famous passage in, in James, is where James is talking. He says, you want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? You want to know something to do? Stop talking about it. It's this. It's to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, this week, today, is kind of a National Orphan Sunday, which we, we highlight every year. And the past few years have been really, really powerful Sundays. I want to show you a short video right now. We're going to be time delayed. We're going to do Orphan Sunday next week. And as you'll see from this video, we'll make sure to have plenty of Kleenex um, around uh, for next week. Because when you see the images, when you're presented with truth, I'll just give you warning of what next week is about. It's going to be a glorious, great Sunday. But it's going to put some needs um, kind of right in our path. So next week, we'll be able to explore some different ways just to be involved in one of the things God's doing here at this church. Uh, several in this room have adopted. Um, several in this room have fought on the front lines of foster care for years. Um, there are giant needs available right now, and here's one of the things. Some of you go, I don't know if I'll ever be called to foster care. I don't know if I'll ever be called to adopt. There are so many different ways. God is just opening up so many different streams of how to pour into this and how to care um, uh, in, in, in some different ways. So that'll be next, next week. I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be, it'll be powerful. The, the question is this, do my actions and words match? When I, when I see a need, God puts it somewhere in my heart. Do I follow up with, with what I talk about? Who's got number seven? Question number seven. Let's hear it, Mary. So James says in uh, chapter four, verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He puts it in two camps, black and white language. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. You can't be both. 
I walked in high school trying to lead a life where I could, I could manage these two friendships, and, and they didn't work. They didn't like each other that, in that way. And as you read this, you think, wow, that sounds kind of harsh or exclusive or intolerant, until you realize that God has revealed himself in a way that says, you, bride of Christ, you, Christian, are my lover. You're the bride, and I'm the groom. All of a sudden, you see this exclusive relationship, and you say, wow, that's covenant language. That's a vow he's making with me. He's painting a picture the way a husband and wife would paint a picture. It's that kind of loving relationship. So as we went through this, we talked about, uh, you know, what if we had to pick a relationship status for God? What would it be? What would it be for us? How would we, how would we say that we interacted with the world? God calls for him alone to be our friend because intimacy and oneness are impossible with a kind of open relationship going back and forth between the world and him. Number eight, James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We had a mist race contest, which is the first of its kind to my knowledge, and it just illustrated how fleeting our life is. Some last longer than others, but, but if we all squirt bottles, they all dissipate pretty quickly. And we have a proper view of our lives. We say, wow, instead of being like this guy, this, this man with a plan, who's, who's, he's going to go over here, he's going to do this business, we see this, this storyline played out over and over in the Silicon Valley. Some of you might be this person. Some of you might work for this person who really talks almost as if they're God, and yet they can't control one thing. Do we, do I, make plans considering the will of God, yes or no? The challenge, the invitation is to go with plan A. Plan A is this. Does that mean we don't make plans? Of course not. You make plans, but you take great joy as God directs your steps then. And as you make your plans, you don't make plans like you're the sovereign. You make plans in every area of your life, totally cognizant at all times. God, you're sovereign. If, if you will allow this to go on. How about number nine? Simple question. Do I envy the rich? Now, let me just say, this is really weird for any Christian to say yes to. And, and you'll see why in just a second. It happens, but it's really, really strange for a right-thinking Christian to ever say yes to that. Now, I don't want to heap shame upon shame, but let me just, I mean, just basic logic. If you're a Christian, you believe the Scriptures to be true, listen to James 5.1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will, and, and will eat your flesh like fire. Why would we envy that? Now, he's talking about the wicked rich, right? And we talked about the difference. There are wicked rich and godly rich. There are some very godly rich people in the Scriptures. But what he calls out specifically are rats. We talked about rats who hoard um, there are fat cats who, who deal with fraud and just not hard to look around and see these people. Um, there are pigs, you know, swine who just indulge more and more and there's never, there's never enough. Just keep going. And finally, snakes who, who they'll, they'll betray you for a buck. Some of you have, some have been bitten by these kind of people. These are the different kinds of people that, that James calls out 
Jesus said it pretty bluntly, you can't serve God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other or serve one and, and despise the other, he says. So why would we ever, ever envy someone who's, who's heading in these directions and yet sometimes we get tricked into that? Don't envy the rich. Instead, be generous like your Lord is generous. All right, question 10. Who's got question 10? Do I instinctively depend on prayer in all situations? Now, most all of these have a simple yes or no question, but immediately I find myself wanting to go, well, that's a little unfair. Sometimes I this, and, and we want to talk about it and dialogue about it. What's your instinct? What's your instinct to do? James 1, he kicks off the book with this. If any of you lacks wisdom... Check out some more books from the library. Get online and Google it. No. He says, go ask God. If you don't know what to do in a situation, run to God. Let that be your first, biggest, and best resource always. And then everything else, it's good to get some counsel over here. It's good to read up on that. But those are secondary. Goes on to talk about, we looked at this last week, about those who are suffering, let them pray. If you're cheerful, let them praise. That about covers most of life right there. I'll show you one picture, and it'll kind of remind you maybe of this message. If you're on Mount Lassen, you pray. You thank God that you're on Mount Lassen. You say, God, what do you want to do with me in this season of giant blessing? Surely it's not so I can indulge myself, fatten myself up for a day of slaughter. Surely you've got this for a blessing for others as well. If you're down in Death Valley right now, you pray. You're in suffering. Don't run from God. Run straight to God. Say, God, surely you are still sovereign. You are still in control. You won't delay like we just sang. Your timing is perfect. Right now, feels like delay. But I know whenever it feels like it's a delay, I'm to endure patiently. So, God, I'm just going to endure patiently. And everything in between is represented by I-5. Stuck in traffic, zipping along, long, straight, boring, smelly, as we learned last week. Right? In all the in-between, pray. Mountaintop, Death Valley experience. In the very back, as you head out, maybe you saw this on the way in, but it's, a, it's kind of a neat, a neat picture. We have, we have our, our, uh, our paper of endless praise that a couple of weeks ago sat right over here, and you guys just wrote some of the things you're thankful for. And it's held down by four rocks that were used early on in this series that some of us held in our hands. Each of those four rocks represented four trials that four people in this room were going through at the time. So here's our, our, our paper of endless praise held down by the trials in life. And I look at that, I go, wow, what a, what a pretty complete picture of life. The highs, the lows, and everything in between. God's counsel for us, run to me, talk to me, bring it to me, pray. All right, so there's ten questions. The ten questions are a test, they're an audit to see kind of where am I at. Like I said, it's, it's a little bit harder than doing a diagnostic on a car or something. But you can begin to look at personal relationships, at spiritual growth, at your walk with God and say, are these things coming out in my life or or are they not there? Are they there and growing in increasing measure or were they there a while ago but haven't been there in a while? So here's just 10 questions that James asks. What's really is it's not the final notice this morning. Uh, Part of why we take a week to review is sometimes we can just close a book, jump right on to the next thing, can't we? Go from one experience to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, without ever just stopping and digesting a little bit. 
Saying, God, we just invested a lot of weeks in the book of James. We had lessons. Maybe it's time to just soak a little bit and meditate a little bit on some of the things that that God may have, have taught us. That's what this morning was about. So we're clearly called to action, but what are we to do? When are we to do it? Where, God? Where, where do you want us to do it? You know what? This community that's around you, the reason we meet midweeks is to help flesh some of that out. Sometimes God will just help you hone in on a, a, a decision as you walk with other like-minded brothers and sisters. They'll help you see your blind spots. They'll help you say, man, I wouldn't let go of that. God keeps putting that in your heart. You've been talking about that for 10 years. And they'll almost, they'll almost help you connect the dots. God will use other brothers and sisters in your life to say, man, um, you know, God's, God's doing this thing in you. Can't you see it? And as they start to interpret life with you and help you see things. I love this reality that as we obey, God reveals more and more of his will. Many of you know this because you've lived it. As you take those first steps, you didn't have any answers to the rest of the questions. It opens up new questions whenever you obey God, Right? But it always, it always reveals more as well as we go along. The last thing I want to do this morning is show you a video of, um, of an action step. I feel like with James, it should be true of every Sunday that, that we walk away with some kind of action step. And one of the things that we've committed to this year, again, is Operation Christmas Child. And it's been a phenomenal response. You guys have just blown us away with, uh, we've, had this, we've had this goal, and these boxes are just going. And what's neat is, um, is that, our actions in response to God's love for us should mature as we mature with God. And I want you to see how the ministry actually morphed over time a little bit from just meeting physical needs, which are there and real, to, to really intentionally through the years morphing into, uh, into more of the spiritual needs. We're going to end our service just with some response. And one of the ways we respond um, uh, at church is to sing. We're going to have some songs uh, that, that we're going to invite you to sing. Uh, we're also going to have an opportunity to give um, and, and respond in that way. Um, uh, I would also just invite you and challenge you, if one of these questions in particular is there that needs confession, confess. What that looks like is you just right where you're at, in your seat, talking to God and just agreeing with God. God, that's not me. And then also committing and saying, God, I, I want that to be me. Would you grow this love for others in me? Would you, would you grow? Would you take away the hypocrisy and bring, a, bring about genuineness in me? And those are some of the kinds of things I would invite you to do. Uh, take over offering. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Father, I just praise you uh, that you are working and moving in our lives. I thank you, Father, for the, the, the applicable, blunt language of James, God. There's not a hidden message here. We can't walk out of here unclear about about the things you're calling us to. Father, I pray you'd let these ten questions that that James poses land on us and, and permeate us, God, and change us. I pray some in this room, God, are celebrating because they can take inventory and stock and say, God, you are at work in me because I've tried to change this area of my life for years and, and now you're doing it as I yield to your spirit. God, as we sing right now, as we give, as we celebrate, as we confess, God, I thank you that, that you inhabit the praises of your people. I thank you that this is an intimate moment for us to be together with you. In Jesus' name, amen.